Our sermon passage this week picks up uh, in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. This week we'll be in chapter 5, and the end of chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. This is the words of Jesus. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, as John the Baptist, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it so that you may be saved. John was a lamb that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy this light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But, I do not, but do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would also believe me. For you wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you willing to believe what I said? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about, and so we get a picture of who we are and what we are to be about. I pray in these moments reveal to our hearts the beauty and the majesty and the grandeur of Jesus Christ, that our hearts might be captured by him all the more, that you would build your love in us, build us, or to join these witnesses, the witnesses of who Jesus is. I pray all this in the name of so about a month ago, a name that had not been in the news for a while suddenly was everywhere, and that's the name Bill Cosby. Maybe you remember this about four weeks ago. Suddenly it was big news because Bill Cosby, who had been sentenced a few years ago to a 10-year jail sentence related to ongoing <laughs> uh, sexual predatory uh, acts against women, was released. Three years into his 10-year sentence, he was released after his court case went to the Court of Appeals. For a couple of days, it was all over the place. But do you know why it was released? I don't know if you clicked on any of those articles. It wasn't because suddenly they found out that Bill uh, Cosby was, was innocent. Not at all. In fact, the people who released him said, no, he's still guilty of what he's done. He was released on a technicality. Three years in, he was able to afford enough lawyers that kept hammering, kept hammering at the details of his case. And he was released Again, the truth has not changed. He's still guilty of what he had been convicted of in the first place, but he's a free man today because of a technical, legal technical. I remember reading it and thinking, no wonder abuse victims are so hesitant to speak out in court. This kind of thing happens over and over again. In our passage today, we find Jesus facing the first direct opposition he's faced in the Gospel of John. Now we've gone through the Gospel of John verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and up till now Jesus has faced uh, inquisitive questioning, maybe. 
He's had a few people come and ask him some hard questions maybe about who he is. But here in John 6, John 5, he faces the very first direct opposition. It says the religious leaders begin to persecute him, and then even that they were seeking to uh, kill him. They've begun to plot against him. The plot was going to come to fruition uh, at his crucifixion. And what's happened, the reason why he's faced such ire at this point is because he's healed a man on the Sabbath. We talked about this. The Sabbath as a gift of God for rest and rejuvenation of his people as an instrument of justice. It can turn into a weapon. Jesus heals this man who's been struggling with physical disability for 38 years. The responsibility of the religious leaders isn't this, is not, isn't this great. This guy who's lived under the shadow of our temple that we've done nothing to help. Their response is, how dare you do this on our holy day? How dare you show mercy on the Sabbath? And so that's what Jesus has faced. And in response to their opposition, Jesus tells them plainly the truth. He tells them who he is. He says that I am equal to the Father, that the Father's works are my works. And what you see me doing is what the Father does. He's making clear to them who he is, that he has an authority greater than them. He's equal to the Father and His works are the Father's. And that's the truth. That there is the truth that Jesus has testified to. But Jesus knows, this is a bit of anachronism, Jesus knows that He's facing in these religious leaders a group full of Bill Cosby's lawyers that are looking for technicalities. They're looking for reasons why they don't have to take Jesus seriously. And so what happens here in our passage today is Jesus enters into um, kind of a common legal... Uh, workings of witnesses and the way they worked in the Jewish courtrooms at the time. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 31. It might be a little confusing. Our very first verse when he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. That's not Jesus saying I'm not trustworthy. That's Jesus entering into the, the legal lines that had been drawn about witnesses. Let me explain. If you flip back to the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17 through 19, there's legal precedent set down um, on what it means to charge somebody with a crime and then go to court. And so what you're going to see there is everything had to be established on the basis of two to three witnesses. It couldn't just be one witness showing up and saying something happened. It had to be two or three witnesses. So you had to have a multiplicity of people that were willing to testify that you had done something wrong. And, this is the kicker, they took this seriously. Being a witness in a case was no joke, because if it was found out that you had lied in your testimony, then the punishment that would have been given to the person that you were testifying against was visited on you. So that was the rules about witnesses. You had to have a multiplicity of witnesses, two to three at least, and they had to be witnesses that had character that could be trusted, because they took seriously what it meant to testify. So in our passage, Jesus is facing his first accusation of blasphemy. And what Jesus does is he begins to call his witnesses. And that brings me to my first section, the witnesses of Jesus. In verse 32, he begins to call his witnesses. And we'll see, not only does he meet the requirements of number, he had to call two to three, he calls four. He exceeds it in every way. In verse 33, he calls John the Baptist as his first witness. Now, John the Baptist was perhaps the most popular and significant religious figure in the early first century before Jesus. He was incredibly popular. Um, we have writings about John the Baptist, not just in the New Testament. You can go read a guy named Josephus who wrote 
decades later, he was still writing about John the Baptist. He was an incredible, uh, incredible figure that loomed large in the imagination of the religious folks at the time. And what Jesus says, uh, as he talks about John, in 30, verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and he chose to enjoy for a time this light. John was a light, and that was his service as a witness, a lamp, think of it this way, a lamp that lit the way to Jesus. It was a lamp on the road that lit the way to Jesus, or lighted, I don't know what the grammar, lit, or is it lighted, I don't know. I'll look at it. So that's the first witness he calls John the Baptist. The second witness he calls here in verse 36, he points them to the witness of his own actions. If you don't believe what I've said about who I am, then look at my actions. What do they say about who I am? Jesus has done these acts that we've talked about in the Gospel of John so far very much in public. He's done his healings in public. He marched into the temple and drove out the money changers in public. And if you fast forward to the crucifixion of Jesus when he's literally on trial before Pilate and Caiaphas, the high priest, he says, I've done everything in public. I haven't done this stuff in secret. Jesus is making the point here. He calls the witness of his actions. Don't just believe my words. What do my actions say about the way? In verse 37, he even calls, and this is probably the biggest one-upsmanship that Jesus could do, he calls God the Father as his witness. Because God the Father was testified to who Jesus is through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures. And it's interesting to note here, when Jesus says the Scriptures, He means the Old Testament. None of the New Testament have been written yet. And Jesus is making a big claim. The Holy Scriptures that, that are at the very center of Jewish identity and religious faith point to who Jesus is. They're a witness to who Jesus is. And in the final verses of our passage, Jesus doesn't just generically point to Scripture. He calls the witness of Moses. He says, Moses will stand as the accuser because Moses spoke about me. Now, interestingly, what Jesus is pointing to, I think specifically, is those very same passages that set up the laws about witnesses. Deuteronomy 17 through 19 are the very same passages where Moses talks about in chapter 17 the qualifications for the king over God's people. He says, you're going you're gonna to have a king, and this is what the king is supposed to be like. It's in Deuteronomy 17. And incidentally, none of the kings of Israel or Judah ever met that, not even David or Solomon. And in chapter 19 of verse Deuteronomy, Moses, at the end of his life, says that one day God is going to send a prophet that's like me. And when he comes, listen to him. Now that's significant. You'll know if you know anything about the Old Testament, there's lots of prophets. There's Isaiah, there's Jeremiah, there's Ezekiel. There's all these guys that can be rightly called prophets. But when Moses says that God's going to send a prophet like me, he's saying something significant. Moses was the first. He was the foundation. And you can even think of the prophets of the Old Testament like Isaiah and Jeremiah, almost like lawyers. When they're speaking to God's people, they're referring back time and time again to the books of Moses. To the law given by Moses. And they're almost prosecuting the case against God's people. Gross oppression happens. Violence is happening in the kingdom. And the attorneys, the prophets, point back to the case law. They say, this is what has been violated. This is the ugliness that's in our society. But what Moses says is what's going to, what God is going to do is not just send someone after me that points back to me. 
He's going to send a prophet like me. Moses was the leader that led God's people out of the Egyptian bondage and the freedom. Moses is the one through whom God had given instructions regarding uh, the tabernacle, which was the symbol of God dwelling with them in, in, their, in their midst. Moses was the one through whom God gave the first five books of Scripture that outlined the basis and the cornerstone and the bedrock what God's people were going to be. So when Moses says there's another prophet coming, he's not just saying there's another guy that's going to say a lot of things like me. He's saying God is going to do something in the future. He's going to send somebody that's going to speak authoritatively, not just referencing back to the past, but someone who brings God's grace to the world. And so these are the witnesses that Jesus comes. He calls John the Baptist. He calls his own actions. He calls God the Father speaking through the Scriptures. He calls Moses. As you can see, this is an impressive list. Like I said, this is Jesus entering the technicalities of case law, calling more witnesses that he needs, and calling very impressive witnesses indeed. But there's a tragedy in this passage, and this is what I want to call my second, passage, second section, the missing witnesses. Missing witnesses. There's a tragedy in this passage, and it's this. There should have been another witness that Jesus could, could call the religious leaders themselves that he's speaking to. They are the people, of all people, who should have seen this clearly. When Jesus talks about they search the scriptures diligently because they think in them they have eternal life, these were the people that were from an early, early age would have memorized scripture. And back in those days, they didn't have chapter and verse markers. It was literally just big blocks of text memorizing. These are the people, of all people, who should have seen it clearly. They had been in charge of the temple. And so they had been in charge of teaching God's people His Word. They had been tasked with making sure that justice was administered in the Jewish community. They were the people that the cases were brought to. Yet, when the true light of the world that Jesus arrived... He was rejected. And why? Well, I think Jesus tells us. Look at verse 42. I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. They held all the things that they had. Their position, their status as leaders. As teachers, as judges. They held all of these things as a badge of honor to wear. Instead of gifts given by grace. Gifts given by God to them. And so their position, as impressive as it may be, was gutted of its power. Because it was not invigorated in every way by the energizing love of God. They are the missing witnesses here. Apart from the profound love of God invigorating them, invigorating us... We are like lamps that aren't plugged in. We have the white bulb. We have all the mechanisms that are supposed to work. But if we're not plugged into the electrical outlet, if we're not plugged into the source, the energizing and liberating love of God, then we do not shine. We're made to shine. But disconnected from the power source that gives us light, the light of the, love of the Lord and His love, we don't. And this love of God is what invigorated every witness that Jesus called. Spoke about John the Baptist being a light that shined on the path. The rest of those witnesses were the same thing. They were all pointing to who Jesus was, the significance of who he was. John the Baptist, the scriptures of the Old Testament, his actions, 
Moses were all arrows pointing forward, were all lights lighting the way, spotlights pointing to the great light of Jesus. John the Baptist was a great witness, not because he was a great leader of good words, because he was filled with God's Holy Spirit, that is filled with the love of God as his motivation and his way of prayer. The actions of Jesus in healing and demonstrating his power and authority and kindness are great witnesses, not just because they're powerful. We can go to Chris Angel and find a good magic trick. Those actions were powerful witnesses because they were filled with the love of God for broken humanity. The scriptures that pointed to Jesus were inspired by God and given, not just as a rule book to tell people how to live. If we read scriptures just a rule book, we miss the point entirely. They were inspired by the love of God to create a community surrounding His promises who are defined by the love of God. And Moses? Moses, perhaps the most single, consequential person in Israel's history, he was a profoundly flawed man who didn't go into Egypt and politic his way into freeing God's people from slavery. He was someone called by the love of God to help lead God's people out of the bondage. All of this, all of these witnesses are motivated, invigorated, energized, empowered by the love of God that Jesus says here, verse 42, is missing from the hearts of his religious leaders. I know you. I know that you cannot have the love of God. So we've seen the testimony for the witnesses of Jesus. We've seen the missing witnesses. I want to close our sermon today thinking about this. Our witness. Our testimony to who Jesus is. Because this language of witness, this language of testimony is a key one in the New Testament. It doesn't just happen here in John 5. If you read the book of Acts, for instance, it's said over and over again that first generation of disciples and apostles that were going out and planting churches across the whole Roman world, they were witnesses to Jesus. And if you read their sermons, what do they talk about time and time again? Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead. They're saying Jesus is alive and it changes everything. Flee to him and his grace. Flee from this broken world to the Jesus who has risen in victory and brought the new creation of God. It's not just there. It's also in the book of Revelation, as we read in our confession and assurance here in Revelation 12. How did they triumph over the accusations of Satan? By the blood of the Lamb, what? The word of their testimony. Something key and foundational to who we are as people who have been won by the grace of God is witnesses to the God who gives grace. Something key is our testimony that we can point, not to ourselves, we can point to a God who has chased after us in Christ Jesus. We can say we're not impressive. We can thank people when they give us compliments or whatever. You're a really kind person. We say no. Yeah, I might be kind, but what you're seeing is evidence is of God's grace reigning in my heart. Our church today. And in 10 years from now, we're not just ever going to be a social club of people who have similar interests or are at similar stages in life or have similar styles or whatever. In every true church of Jesus Christ, there's a deeper unity that binds us together. The faithful God who has faithfully worked on our behalf. And so we, individually, and we together, we are like lamps meant to shine the way to Jesus. We're lights that don't point back to ourselves. We're lights on a path that lead people to the great light of God, Jesus Christ.
But just like religious leaders, if we aren't plugged into the profound love of God, if we aren't plugged into that power source, then we're never going to shine the way we were created to. If we don't come back to Jesus time and time again as our motivation, as our way to thrive, if we don't find Him as the energizing power that is at the center of who we are, that propels us forth every day, then we're not going to shine the way we were created to. But the truth is, we live lives where we're so often tempted to go to different sources to find our energy and power. You know, maybe Sunday we'll come and we'll sing some songs and uh, we'll be moved by the passage and the beauty of the gospel. But how often do we march into the days of spreadsheets on Tuesday or the demands of whatever on Wednesday? The mundane of our life when we find our motivation from maybe the credentials or the letters that we have after our last name. The degrees we have on all, How hard we've worked. How much we've saved in our 401k. Etc. 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 Reality is that the profound love of God in Jesus Christ is supposed to be that never-ending fountain of grace and worthiness that sits at the center of who we are. Not just on Sundays. Not just when we gather together as a church. But in the day in, day out of whatever God has called us to in our lives. And that's what it means for us to be witnesses. You know, if you've been in church for a while, you hear the word witness and you think like going around knocking on people's doors and asking them if they're going to heaven or hell. Which is a great first question to build a relationship, right? Um, no. Witness often looks like words that we say, but it also looks like lives lived. Witnessing to Jesus looks a whole lot more like a lifetime of walking as a dearly delighted in son or daughter of God and people seeing that rather than a one-time event where you have really great words to say or even a one-time deed when you do something nice. It looks like people seeing you in failure and in weakness, not despair. Because you're coming back to a fountain of worthiness that is yours in Christ that can never be tried. We are called to be witnesses, friends. Not of ourselves. The great thing is, in the gospel, we don't have to be vindicated. Because God vindicates us. We don't have to keep score on who's wronged us. Because we've been set free from that, uh, that equation, mindset, way of living. We can be people who radiate grace because it's a grace that doesn't radiate from us. Talk about it before. Paul talks about us being jars of clay that hold these promises even though we've got chips. <laughs> the places where we're broken are often the, top, the exact places where the grace of God spills out from us. But we don't have to be worried because the grace keeps pouring into us from Christ. And that'll never come down. So, a couple of pieces of application to think about this for us to chew on as we leave. What does it mean for us to be witnesses? I want to encourage us this morning. The first encouragement is this. Is God will use us as witnesses. That's what this church is. A witness to who He is. A witness that He is alive and changes everything. So the encouragement is this. God will use us as witnesses to people who do not yet believe. You probably have a list in your head of family members and friends, co-workers, whoever, that you know are far from God. And you know that. Maybe you've had the conversation. Maybe you just kind of have discerned it over time. But they're far from God. Take courage in this. God will use you 
and the witness of you being someone who is always a recipient of God's praise to point them to Him. And I don't just say that in a blanket, like try to motivate us, pep rally kind of way. You know, I'll say that from experience. I've seen it happen in my own family. I've seen it with friendships. And it's never ever we have one good argument and argue someone into the kingdom of God. It never happens. It's good to have answers. But I've seen hearts of stone melt away and be transformed into hearts of flesh that receive the gospel of God through people seeing the witness of someone's changed life over time. And I don't just mean seeing the witness of good fruits. I, I mean seeing the witness of people stumble and get back up and walk in the grace of God. I've seen the witness of people fail big in front of other people and continue going because they found the worthiness, they found forgiveness, they found hope in Jesus Christ. So God will use us as witnesses to those who not yet believe. And that's my big prayer about who we are as a church. Here's the other thing. We were never meant to be witnesses alone. Even the great witnesses that Jesus called here, any of them could stand by themselves as very impressive. Right? John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, the scriptures, Moses, of course, you know, they should be able to stand alone. Even Jesus called them together as witnesses. We weren't meant to be witnesses by ourselves. That's part of the reason we're brought together as a community in the church. We're reconciled to one another and to a new family, a new community that is defined, that has its value system in the gospel of grace. So the church is a place you come in and it does not matter what car you drive. It does not matter what job you have how much money you have in the bank. Because here, the value system, what matters is the grace of God. And that spills out from here when we become witnesses and people see that. They say, how are those people in church together? They are from wildly different places in life. Why do they even bother getting together at 10 a.m. and Sunday? Why do they pray for each other? Why do they care what's going on? Why do they weep with each other? Why do they rejoice with each other? We are meant to be witnesses together and witnesses to each other. Because the truth is, my lamp light is going to go low sometimes. My bulb's going to, I'm going to push this metaphor until it falls apart. My bulb's going to pop. The, the wire's going to fray. The times when my light is ebbing low, I desperately need my brothers and sisters in Christ to shine. And I can walk in the light that you shine, even in the midst of my doubts. Even in the midst of my temptations and my troubles. We're meant to be witnesses with each other and to each other. And finally this. This is our testimony. As we march forward as a church. As I pray for what we're going to be 30 years from now. And the impact this church is going to have on Don and the surrounding community. Our testimony is this, friends. And it will never not be this. If the grace of God can find me, it can find anybody. Period. I'm the worst sinner I know. And I know a lot of sinners. I know all of you. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, not really, but I know a lot of sinners. I'm the worst one I know. I am. If the grace of God can find me, if the grace of God can sustain me, if my heart can be moved by the profound love of God in Jesus Christ for me, and that can happen day after day, time after time, then it can find anybody, anybody at all. God can love me, he can love anybody. And part of our understanding, part of our growing witness is our growing understanding of the depth of his grace. 
I've said this before. Grace is just like water. It runs to the deepest point. The deepest point of who we are. It can run to the deepest part of our community. There's not a person in done ravaged by drugs that the grace of God cannot find. There's not a person in this community that is wrapped up in whatever kind of life they might be toiling away at that the grace of God cannot find. And here's my great hope, my prayer, that we're going to see that happen here in this room, in our church, in this place, and we're going to watch transformation happen. We're going to watch this happen as witnesses to the grace that can find me in God. If you can find me, you can find me. And so, as we're looking forward um, to the next season of our church's life, as we're looking forward to what it means to come out, hopefully, of a COVID-ravaged social world, world in general, we continue to pray for that. It's Delta variants, no joke. But as we look forward, not just to this fall, but to the coming years as a church together, I want to encourage us to pray, and to pray over and over again, even repetitive prayers, it's not a bad thing, that we pray our mission, that the gospel through us will be good news, news for the lost that found the seed in the world. So good news for the lost. I encourage you, the people that you know that are far from God, begin naming their names in prayer every day. Maybe you're already doing that. But I encourage you, continue if you're already doing it. And if you're not, make a list. Maybe don't make a list where they're going to find it and then suddenly find out that you, <laughs> you know, not embarrassing. But, if you make a list in your mind, moment in the day, when you have a spare moment aside, you pray. God, give your grace to explain this. Begin to pray that God will use you in your actions and your words to be a witness to their grace again, not just in, the, the, in your strength, but even particularly in your weakness. Be open. You're not perfect. They know that. Don't act like you are in front of them. Points them to Jesus. And so we can become a place that we begin to pray for this. And we'll be, and we'll be able to see these seats and these tables if the AC keeps going out. Um, populated and filled more and more with people that maybe nobody else thought would ever, ever find Jesus. How about, uh, good news for the found. From the very first idea of this church coming to mind, in my heart, I pray that God would send us people that are far from Him, and God would send us people, burned out Christians, who have been used by other churches, who have been communicated to that what matters is that they can do stuff. That this would be a place of rest and sanctuary for people who have been chewed up and spit out by the ministry machine that can happen in churches. And so join me in praying for that. We don't want to be a church. I don't want to just steal a bunch of people from other churches. No interest whatsoever in that. But I want this to be a place of rest forever for people who come in need to find a Savior that cares more for them about them as people than what they can do for a church to fill out a you know, ministry schedule. So let's begin to pray for there, for that. And let's work against a mindset that says the, the, the value of a person in our church matters on what they can do. It's not true. It's never going to be true. Let's not act like it. The other thing 
as we're thinking about outreach or good news for the city, um, let's pray. There's some opportunities that this fall, I was just uh, working on this week. There's a chalk fest happening in October here downtown. The cotton festival is happening in November. We're planning to do uh, something that we kind of started two years ago at the Cotton Festival, have a, uh, a place for nursing mothers and a diaper changing station. We'll be able to actually use our church office, which would be great for that. Um, but pray, not just for name recognition. We're not just looking at this from a marketing perspective, but that through very small things like that, the beginning of us serving our community, the people of our community. Well. Another area to pray for good news for the city, um, Dunn's a diverse place. 42% black, 48% white, 78% Hispanic. Um, but there's not a single church in our community that reflects that beautiful diversity. Not a single one. Join me in praying now that that will be true here. That God will open up space and hearts and that we would be a community that reflects our community. <laughs> that we would be a church where people can look for the outside and say, how in the world did that happen? We've been praying with you specifically for that. And not just racial diversity. Let's pray for age diversity. We want, I want zeros to 99s in this church. And for everybody to feel at home, as hard as that might be, choosing music and all the little things here and there, but a place where people come and find a home, find a family in this church. And finally... Praying for good news for the world. This is what we can do. Begin praying now. Because I believe that God's going to call up in our number, maybe amongst our kids, maybe again amongst our adults, people that aren't even here yet. He's going to call up other church plants. That our church will become a church planting church. And one day Christ Church done will turn into a sister congregation in Clinton, in Smithfield, in Benson, in Lillington. It's going to turn into a college ministry in partnership with other churches in our denomination at Campbell University. This is what I'm praying for right now. It might seem foolish because we're not a lot of people with a ton of resources, but this is God's work. It's not mine. It's not yours anyway. This is His kingdom. So that's what we're praying for now. Join me in that. That God will raise up church planters and people to go and plant gospel-centered churches because that is what our communities need. They need communities that are pointing to the worthiness and the glory of Jesus. So that's how we can begin praying now and moving forward as we anticipate seeing what God does in His grace to use us as witnesses and to multiply His grace with us.